With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I didn't go on stage with the conscious goal like I'm pursuing comedy. I just was going to these open mic nights and I just got this little itch to just go, oh, I could go up there. I mean, I could just sign up for this and they'll let me up there, like let anyone up there. And... Yeah, so I did it. So I remember feeling uncomfortable because I guess I, in my mind, I still wanted to be in a band. And at some point, I think it was like eight months in where I was like, I guess, I guess I'm doing this. And it's, it's weird because it's weird to do something that you didn't really plan on. And along the way too, it must be frustrating. I mean, there's a luck factor too in the sense that some people get sitcoms, some people totally explode upwards or for, for all the right reasons or wrong reasons. What was happening in the early stages that kept you going or thinking maybe I should quit this? Weirdly, I don't think I ever said I'm thinking about quitting, which I guess is pretty telling. Oh, okay. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I've got the comedian Todd Barry on the podcast. Todd, I didn't even let you drink water. I know. Let me take one sip. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. What was the meeting you just came from? You almost oh, just the podcast. A, it was just a doctor appointment. You okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm fine, yeah. So, Todd, first off, I'm going to read the title of your book. Thank you for coming to Hattiesburg. Uh-huh. What's the subtitle again? Uh, I'm, I always mess up the subtitles. One Comedian's Tour of... Not the biggest cities in the world, Not something the like that. Cities in the world. I think right, that's so Hattiesburg being one of them, <clears throat> right? And then, and then you went on this tour of all kind of sec- mid-level or yeah. second-tier cities, right? I guess they call them secondary or tertiary markets, um, and a few places that it might not fit in that category, but were maybe more unusual for uh, comedians to go to, like Tel Aviv and uh, Anchorage. And- I don't know, is Anchorage mentioned in there? But uh, Alaska's mentioned in there. Yeah, I don't think I have a chapter on Alaska, but I probably mentioned it. But yeah, yeah, places like that. You know, you've done a bunch of specials. You did a special called Todd Barry Crowd Work. Yeah, the Crowd Work Tour, yeah. Yeah, Crowd Work Tour. And uh, you've been on like basically everything, like from way back. I used to watch Dr. Katz. You've uh-huh. been on Dr. Katz. You've been on Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just saw you, you've been on one of my favorite cartoons, Space Ghost. Oh yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, that that uh, I think I filmed that in Aspen, and then it was years after that that they actually used it, if I remember. And then I forget, are you on Inside Amy Schumer? Yeah, I was on that, yeah. So you've been everywhere. I've done a few things, yeah. And you've been, and I think it's basically this month is like your 30-year anniversary of doing stand-up. Uh, November 1st will be my 30th year anniversary. Okay, so this year. Yeah, I guess this year is my 30th year. And so, so 30 years later, uh, all these shows, how's it going? <laughs> It's going all right. I mean, <clears throat> you can still, there's always something to complain about. And uh, my book is full of complaints, but they're petty little, they're more like road hassles, but well, not, not well, lifelong, not like big, hey, everyone should feel bad for me because my hotel room in Boise was noisy or something. But, but, but the book's great because you kind, of, you kind of go into like these tiny details uh-huh. of these small towns that no one's ever heard of and they're funny the way you do it it's almost like your 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 act is very um if, if you if you know i encourage everybody to like at least google your stuff on youtube your act is very like dry and you take these very small nuances and just your your delivery uh-huh. is, is funny yeah i mean I, I would hope so i um i guess yeah i mean there's 
what you're saying and how you say it. And uh, how much do you think is like because because also you like like the crowd work tour is not jokes, but like, no, it's all inter- it's banter with the audience. Yeah. So how much in general in stand up do you think is delivery versus jokes? Um. Well, it depends. I mean, there are some people who you see really have some weak jokes, but they s- just sell them. Uh, and what does that mean, sell them? That's yeah. That means like they just commit to them and just really pound it, and they kind of hit you over the head with it. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily always work with me, but it works with audiences. Like what's an example? I'm not going to give you a name, but um, no, I mean an example joke and selling it. Um, I I I can't think of an example, but just any shitty joke and just being committed to it and uh yeah i mean you can definitely if you have poor delivery if you have a boring delivery you might undersell your stuff but if you oversell it you can also get away with i mean i think there are people who who ride on their personality more than their material like when i watch the crowd work tour it's you could almost do a and like the whole crowd will start laughing Uh (laughs) uh-huh like like so uh, I mean, the, the the classic one is the uh, Avon Abstract. Yeah, the band I talked to in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. So you ask the guy, "What's the name of your van?" He says, "Avon Abstract." Yeah. And you're like thinking for a few seconds, and then you you say, um, "You know, I I do my business cards in that fun." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's moments like that that are uh, pretty delightful, and uh, yeah, spontaneous things in comedy are pretty exciting. I mean, it's good to have good jokes, but it's also, I think the audience, if you do something that they know is, oh, this is just happening here. Like it's a moment that's just for us. They they laugh louder. But it, but it's also, it's it's funny and because you put together somehow that this sounds like a font. Uh-huh. <laughs> you make a joke around it. Right. And and then it's the delivery. Like, right. You know, what a coincidence. And then the, the punchline. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, I guess that's just the difference between being a comedy writer and a comedian that you have to have both. Have you done um, comedy writing for shows? I have. I've done. I mean, I I've had small term writing, short term writing jobs on like a, like video music awards, the VMAs. I've did that. I did that a few years in a row, and I uh, one season of the Sarah Silverman show and uh, program, and then. Uh, yeah, just little writing jobs like that. But I've never been like a staffed guy on a show for like a year or two or something like that. But So one of the funniest things I've seen was 1982. Uh-huh. Okay, David Letterman right. announces you, this guy named Todd Barry uh, has an excellent invitation of Paul Schaefer and he calls you. Yeah, and I mean, I could- 35 years ago. Yeah, I'll, I could tell that. I mean, um, yeah, what happened was I- there was a viewer mail segment on the old David Letterman show. I don't. I think he eventually got rid of that. But where and this was the time. <clears throat> this was in '82 when you actually wrote a letter and put a stamp on it and mailed it to NBC. And I, I was a fan of his for a long time. Like I mean, from the beginning when he had a morning show and even before that. Um, so I just said I, don't know, I should write a letter and just give do something to get attention. And I was 18. I was living in Florida and I wrote a letter and I just said, hey. Um, and this clip is on YouTube, so they can see it. Um, but I said, yeah, hey, I um, I do an impression of Paul Schaefer. Why don't you fly me out and I'll do it live or call me? And he called me on the air. And uh, I mean, I was I was alerted to the fact that he was going to call me. But were you excited like leading up to yeah, that? Yeah, I was really excited. Did you think it was going to like change your life? Because the first time I actually got bumped, I mean, they called me. So a producer called me and said, "Hey, we want to read your letter on the air." And I was just, oh my god, I was ecstatic. And then they called back maybe a few days later and said, yeah, we, we ran, we're we not going to have time to do it. And then my parents took me to TGI Fridays to console me. And what? then like a, the next week they said, hey, we're, we got it. We're going to do it this time. And then he called me. And it, uh, and I was kind of a real, I was surprisingly quick and wise-assy with him considering I was 18. And Yeah, you like... Um... You said something like that, you know, that's how a, fo- a phone works. Well, he, for some reason, he didn't hear the ring, which there was a ring, but he didn't hear it on his end. So he's like, I noticed you just picked up. Was there a ring over there? And I said, yeah, that's the way that thing works. And it, <laughs> just, and, he, and I got a big, you know, I got a big laugh because it's just like this 18-year-old kind of, uh, can I say asshole? Yes. I mean, I wasn't asshole, but it was just, I was not, I was being... He laughed at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he laughed in a way like, it seems like something he would have said when he was 18, so. Did he, um, 
like when you were later on Letterman, did you remind him of this story? I a big regret I have is that I I didn't really pursue telling them because um, I think I don't know why I didn't. Partially is because I only had it on VHS, and then partially was because. I thought, oh, well, they can't. Are they going to talk about this on the CBS show? Are they going to show a clip from the NBC show? But maybe they would have. And I, I regret, but I did. Seems like you were overthinking that. Yeah, I was <laughs> overthinking it. But there was one time where they actually sat me down with him, like during a commercial break. And I was like, I started to tell him, but he has people walking up to him and, you know, he's preoccupied. You can't have a focused conversation on in a commercial break about something like that but yeah but then i posted in a lot of uh, blogs and the websites picked up on it so it it got some attention i posted around the time he uh retired so now do you, do you think incidents like that kind of set you off into like what 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 triggered you to start doing comedy uh full-time say in 1987 well it's interesting that uh yeah i guess i did start not too long after that i but after that, I'd never even considered being a comedian, a stand-up comic. And I think I, I was in bands and stuff, and I wanted to, I was like, maybe I want to be an actor, maybe I want to be a comedian. Like, I took theater classes at the University of Florida, and I was in a, a band or two or three, and uh, I really liked the idea of being in a band, probably more than I wanted to do anything else. And then... You were in the chant? I was in a band called The Chant, yeah. and But ultimately, I... You know, I'm not good enough to be. I'm not a great musician at all, and I think there was the amount of discipline because I'll watch a drummer. It was drums that I played, and I watch someone now, and I'll just be like, "That is so beyond anything I could have ever done." You think if you think if you had spent thirty years drumming, you would have ever? Yeah, I mean, it's like that thing where you know, I quit piano lessons when I was eight, and then you, twenty years later, you're watching someone play piano. You go, wow, that's kind of cool that he's he gets to be up there and doing that, and. But I, you know, I blew that opportunity. But it wasn't until after college that I decided to do an open mic night, and then didn't really stop. And what happened the first open mic night? It actually, I mean, I was lucky because I started during the comedy boom of the '80s, and uh, so in Florida there was like there was so many clubs you could you could come down to Florida. Guys would come down and, and tour for two months just Florida. There was that many shows you could do, and but they would a lot of the clubs, the full time clubs, had. Um, you know, the, it was the comedy boom of the '80s where comedy just blew up. So people were excited just about comedy in general. So they would go to this club, you know, Coconuts Comedy Club in the Hall and the Howard Johnsons in North Miami Beach, and see someone who they probably haven't heard of, and just pay money and yeah, and so to see someone just to be exposed to just comedy in general. But a lot of the the open mic nights were part of the regular headliner show. So like on a Monday or a Tuesday. They would have the headliner do the show, but the first five acts would be open micers. So you got to play to a real audience as opposed to some of the New York and LA open mics where you do a bar show and there's like 20 people in the audience and 19 of them are about to go on after you. Um, so it's a real audience. So And it went really well and I was prepared and yeah. So When you say you were prepared, like you had written jokes? I wrote jokes and I memorized them. I didn't go up there and I didn't. I think I looked kind of like I knew what I was doing from the get-go and I've since bombed hard you know but that first night actually went really well I actually want to know about the first time you bombed so like let's say you you're starting to feel good about yourself you've gone on like a couple of times like how many times did you go on before the first time you like totally bombed I mean I, I you know I remember some milestones in my career I don't necessarily remember my absolute first bomb but it seems like that would be something people would remember I, well there's been so many of them it's a blur but uh, they're uh yeah, I mean, it's just, um, I mean, it's something you get, as you get do it, you get better at avoiding bombing. You just, you get more comfortable on stage and you get more comfortable kind of uh, looking unfazed. And if you can look unfazed, you can turn things around sometimes. And sometimes you'll still just bomb. I mean, I bombed on television. I mean, yeah, it's not, it doesn't feel good. Like, like it, I think a lot of people... Like if you tell them, oh, I'm going to do stand-up or I'm a stand-up comedian, I think the main thing people think is the first reaction they have is, oh, that's something I would like to try, but I'm too afraid. Yeah. <laughs> because they're afraid of that bombing. Right. I mean, I've even talked to, I mean, I think that's why musicians are really good in the audience generally. I'll, there are fans of comedy because, and I've had many of them tell me, like, you know, I can, and some of them are 
people who played up thousands of people who are just like, man, I just, you know, you're up, I'm up there with my guitar. I can, you know, I could turn it, turn it up. I can turn away from the audience. I don't have to look at them. I mean, you're just up there, you know, naked is the description they often use. And yeah, and it is, it is kind of a thing where I sometimes can't believe that I do it. Like I, I do a, a fair amount of public speaking uh-huh. and in public speaking, you could, you, there's the, the prop is not the guitar, but it's like the topic of what you're talking about. So you always can default to stories in that topic and any laughter that happens is sort of a surprise to the audience. They're yeah. so happy that someone's going to make them laugh, but you don't have to make them laugh every 10 seconds. You right. can make them laugh every five minutes and think you're still funny. Right. For something like, yeah, for someone like who's a public speaker on whatever topics that aren't it's not a comedy show like any all that's a bonus and that makes people go wow this is great i mean it's very helpful skill to have but like with comedy you're only up there right to to it has nothing to do with you yeah, it's it has not to a do bonus with, if you get a laugh when right. you're a comedian it's like oh no it's it's uh it's what you're supposed to do it's mandatory right and not only that it can't be once every minute like if you i don't you've probably never done this i have done this where you take like let's say the best 10 comics or whatever and I time the time between laughs and it's usually about 10 seconds. Yeah, I mean I think there was a standard that some people like an artificial standard that people would make fun of which was like every 15 seconds you're supposed to get a laugh and it, it there's I mean there's that's just not true really. I mean because there are people I've seen tell you know a long story and you like you wait a minute and a half and then it has this huge payoff or something but but that's also a very skillful thing to do because of because of that expectation you just mentioned. Right. And and but for for you with the crowd work, I imagine it must be even a little scarier because you're going on, you don't have material planned. Mm-hmm. You might have probably some No, I really don't. You have nothing. The only thing I'll plan something like maybe walking to the stage or before I go on like something I see in the room or something or something like that, but I don't I don't have like jokes that I'm muscling in that are pre-written. Do you have like maybe a repertoire like instead in in the sense that oh this person's a musician or this person's a secretary well, so you know roughly where you're going to go with it? There are times where you you end up going down the same path like if it's you know it's a musician and they have a silly band name or something. So th- there are circumstances that you and I and I try to edit out any repetition obviously in the uh, cuz I talked to a few people who ended up being comedians and and there was actually a guy in the show who I didn't realize the guy I talked to right at the beginning is a comic. I had no idea at the time, but because he's also sitting like third row, which is a weird place for a comic to sit. Why? Well, it's just that's more of like I'm an audience member, and he's also you know he was a newer comic then, so it wasn't like he's like Mr. Cool standing in the back. But the um, so there were a few like you know few people I talked to who turned out at revealed themselves as comedians, and I was like, well, I don't want to look like forty percent of the people I'm talking to are comedians. Because it wasn't, but I mean, so I, I, you know, I got rid of them and and just kind of focused, just tried to mix it up a little bit. Because I did seven cities and there was was a lot of material to work with. I think there was, uh, I think it was in this one, there was one guy who said he was a comedy writer and you were like, "Mm, I don't think so. Oh, yeah, that may have been in Vancouver. Um, Gosh. Yeah, I don't. I that sounds familiar, but yeah, there was one guy who said he's a comic, or I think, and I probably I could have very easily said something like that. Now, speaking of the your drummer days, there's all I forgot to mention. You also were in the um, last episode of the first season. I think it was the first season of the Flight of the Concords. Yeah, and and you were the the bongo guy. Yeah, I was the third Concord. The right. guy brought in, unbeknownst to the band, by the Murray, the manager, to to just suddenly that he just you know thrusted me upon them so yeah that was that was really fun and and did you did you did you was there ever a point where you kind of were hoping or closing close to being a regular on one of these shows you've been like in so many great shows um larry sanders show yeah i mean i i just always want to do stuff that's good so i I, i'm sure there's auditions i've not done because it's just like i don't want to be stuck on something i don't want to do so what's a what's a, a day in your life like uh other than like podcasting on like great podcast uh, shows. Well, I mean, I have a girlfriend and she moved in recently and she has a cat. So, you know, that keeps you busy. A, there's a lot of petting the cat. And uh, yeah, I kind of just, I mean, I tend to go to a coffee shop every day and with the, with the conceit that I'm working and then 
Then what, what's working like writing jokes, writing material? I um I have you know I have projects I'm working on like uh, I mean I'm doing I'm filming a special. Uh, I don't know where it's going to end up being on, but so they're like, where oh, are you filming it? At the Music Hall of Williamsburg. Okay. Yeah. I'm you, going to it. You can go. Write to me and I'll, I'll hook you up. But uh, yeah, so there, there's um, just working on the, you know, just the order of the jokes and then trying to add some more jokes. But I, I, I don't have a real, <clears throat> like Seinfeld sits down and, you know, I think he writes out the jokes like with a legal pad, word for word, and tweaks them that way. Whereas I kind of, I wish I did more of that. I try to do some of that because I think that is a helpful thing. I feel like it can only help. But I, I'm like a lot of comics, I kind of just get an idea and then start talking about it on stage and write on stage. But I feel like that's that's a, a, a skill level thing where like you've been doing it for 30 years. I don't think the average person could sort of say, okay, this seems funny. I'm just going to talk about it on stage. I think you, most people have to probably write out the jokes. Um. I mean, it depends on what your style is. If you're a one-liner person, probably you're writing, you're probably not working them out as much as, not that I'm like a ranter, but someone like, you know, like a Bill Burr or something is probably not, I don't think, writing every word for word that he ends up saying. Because it's sort of a lot of his, you know, things come up in the heat of the moment and you're just like, ooh, I was, had no idea I was going to say that. And then, but you can, I think you can also make a little of that happen if you go to a coffee shop, and that's something I try to do, it's just not, it's not fun. Not fun to, to... I just get distracted and, and frustrated, and I kind of like, when I have an idea for a joke, it's just like I want it to be done, which is just not realistic, and it's not... So, so like, what do you mean? Like, what's a, what's a sample idea that you started and then just didn't take to the finish line until you got on stage? Well, I mean, a joke I, I, I mentioned on when I did... Uh, comedians in cars was this joke about how fr- just that fruit sucks. It's an it's an anti fruit joke, and it's just like I don't understand. But I, then it's the contrast, like, oh, but I love orange juice, so it's just confusing to me how something so delicious comes from an orange or something. It was something along those lines, and it's one of those jokes. Some of the hit or miss jokes are the ones that resonate with like the most feedback you get. Like that joke will work th- when I've did it. I don't do it anymore, but you know, thirty percent of the times, but will be like 25% of the compliments I get off stage. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't hit a lot of people, but it some hits some people hard. <laughs> that's, but that's interesting though, that a joke will only hit 30% of the time. You don't find that the same joke uh, kind of always hits. There are some jokes that are more reliable than others. Then they're just sort of occurrences where it's just like, I can't think of a specific example, but I'll, where I, you know, I'll do a joke that seems like New York centric a little bit and then I do it in in you know South Bend Indiana and it works better there than it does in New York and and there's times like where you do six shows at a club and this one joke doesn't work the entire week and it just there's a lot of mystery to audiences just even the the times where you do two shows in one night and one time you're destroying then you go up and do the exact same thing and they're just sitting there and you're just like what what happened what do you think happened I think it. I mean, I think it sometimes is a collective thing. I mean, I know I'm supposed to just go, it's my fault, but I think sometimes, I mean, sometimes, and this is something you learn after you do it a while, like an audience is having a way better time than you think they are. Like, I'm not, if I've always said, I don't want to, I would never want to perform in an audience full of me because I'm not going to be flopping my hands around, howling, laughter, even if I love something. But I mean, occasionally, but it would have to be something. It's an extreme thing for me to laugh that hard. So, I mean, there's times where you just kind of go, you know what, they're listening and they're having a good time. And Or sometimes you do a show and it's like, I don't think they like me. And then you go, thank you, good night. And they're like, bravo. And like, they just, it's almost like a theater experience for them. Mm. But uh, yeah, I don't, I never, I don't know if, you know, many, if there's been a lot of scientific study of audiences, but I don't, sometimes I just don't get it. So, you know, back to 1987, you started with these open mics. At some point you must've said, okay, this is what I'm going to devote my life to. Uh-huh. It's like 30, 30 years later, right. you're still doing it. When did you say, okay, this is it. I'm going to be a, a pro. Well, I do remember having a weird, uncomfortable feeling right after I went on stage the first time. And I almost, you know, I look back at it and I've sort of come to the conclusion that I thought that whether or not or I admitted it, I knew that my life had just changed. Does that make sense? Like, 
It does. Like, it was like, oh shit, I just did this as a goof and I'm feeling weird now. And then I think I did it the next night and then the night after that. You know, feel weird in a good way? Like you were excited? In a kind of an uneasy way because it was it was a thing where it wasn't like, I didn't go on stage with the conscious goal like I'm pursuing comedy. I just was like, I'm gonna, I just was going to these open mic nights and I just got this little itch to just go, oh, I could go up there. I mean, I could just sign up for this and they'll let me up there, like let anyone up there. And yeah, so I did it. So I remember feeling uncomfortable and sort of in denial about that this was, because I guess I, in my mind, I still wanted to be in, in a band. And at some point, I think it was like eight months in where I was like, I guess, I guess I'm doing this. And it's, it's weird because it's weird to do something that you didn't really plan on you know, it's like my goal was to be a comedian, and as I pursued it, it's kind of I fell into it, sort of. During this time, had you bombed at all, or oh, I'm sure I'd bombed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because so you had experienced some frustration along the way too. Yeah, I mean, that is, there's every reason why I should have quit, except I, I mean, that's something I reflect on, and I, in some, in a somewhat positive way, in, in that I do, well, as you know, that one club that wouldn't put me on, but they sort of said they'd put me on and I sat there every night and the guy's like kind of like, hey, we're going to get you on. And like, okay, maybe. And then you don't get on. Like all that shit, that shit would, <clears throat> it did wear me down, but it didn't wear me down where I didn't press on, so. And and along the way too, it must be frustrating. I mean, you know, at different points, there's a luck factor too, in the sense that some people get sitcoms, some people totally explode upwards, or for for all the right reasons or wrong reasons. Like, what kind of what was happening in the early stages that kept you going, or or thinking maybe I should quit this? Um, I I don't think I ever weirdly I don't think I ever said I I'm thinking about quitting, which I guess is pretty telling, but what was the initial question? Like, I'm like what what kept you going when? Let's say other people were getting their own sitcoms or whatever. Well, I, I guess some of that was I wasn't really. I didn't do the work you need to get your own sitcom. I might pitched ideas, but I didn't. It wasn't that was never a goal of mine. I want my own sitcom. Um, but I mean, there was there's been interest in me. You know, I've had various little deals or whatever. But yeah, I guess I just kept going because I, I don't know. Maybe it was like, well, I I'm just not ready to. St- give up on this and you know it is telling jokes for a living so it's <laughs> it's not bad yeah it's not bad I try to remind myself that but it also the, I mean the frustration never ends I mean there's always something like to, what like what's the latest it could just be uh, it could be a travel thing or you know you just or just just sort of sort of housekeeping uh, things just booking a hotel and you know just just or a club owner not paying you right, or you just kind of look around and go, I think he underpaid me, and shit like that. Where Stuff you never would have thought about during your first open mic night. Like, I'm going to be thinking about suing a guy for not paying me or something like that. But, um, and, and just, uh, just, I'm trying to think of like a real good example of a hassle that would be, uh, yeah, I mean, just poor, like some maybe you show up at a club and it's not full, and then you go next door to the bar after the show, and they're like, Todd Barry, what are you doing in, in Chattanooga? Well, I did a show three feet to your left tonight that you probably would have gone to had you known about it, had they put up one poster or tweeted once about it. So stuff like that. And so so along the way, did you feel like, like again, you've been doing it for so long, obviously there's a certain skill level, there's all these uh-huh. subtleties, did you feel along the way that you were developing these skills or was it, did you always, uh, like what, what skills didn't you have at first that you feel you now have? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I think one skill is maybe, and I still battle this, is, is not, uh, not letting them see your whatever, your sweat. I mean, that's a cheesy way of putting it, but that's the way I just put it. Um, just sort of being cool up there, you just get a little more like, yeah, this could, this could still work out and, Kind of an I don't care, but of course you do care kind of attitude. But yeah, and I also think your jokes get better, and 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 also you know as you get along. Then I also the the benefit of doing a long time and getting some TV exposure or whatever is that you get your audience. So I could go to Birmingham, Alabama, and get 150 people 
who like me already. So, and that helps to, as opposed to like an uh, an audience that totally doesn't know you at all. Yeah, I mean that's why lately I've been I've been trying to do music venues and sort of small theaters because, and I complain about this a lot, but like comedy clubs, a lot of the chain ones are just you know they'll have a city like Columbus, Ohio, or something. And I'm not picking on Columbus, Ohio. I'm just picking at random, just where there's you know six show the club probably do six or seven shows over four days and and you know it probably holds 250 300 people or something these clubs and it's like well there's not that many people who really want to see me in columbus ohio so but they need to put some people in those chairs and then you get that's when you get like uh you know free passes and like oh we gave away 100 tickets to your show it's like oh well, that's maybe that's why it sucked because you got people who just got free tickets and that was their entire motivation. To right, so they didn't know who you were. It wasn't necessarily right. like a friendly audience. And that's a double-edged sword because playing to people, you're not born with a fan base. So playing to people you don't know is the way you get fans. So it's great to win people over. And it's also fun. Like, you know, I've done shows at Caroline's or something where that's a place where it's, it's such in the, you know, it's in Times Square basically. And so you'll, I'll look out because my audience kind of skews sort of hipstery web guy nerdy people i mean for the most are you part. describing me no i mean but you yeah it, does, it wouldn't surprise me that you were a fan but uh so then sometimes you look out and you see like you know five 70 year old ladies in the audience who are you're like well i don't i'm not sure that i'm not sure how they got here but sometimes they're like they come up and you're like oh we're from mississippi and we left you know we went on vacation without our husbands and uh, we just had the best time and it's like oh well that's pretty cool too they're probably not going to buy my albums or anything but I did my job for them, you know? Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and... I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. 
I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Every podcast I do is so personal and special to me. The podcast is all about how people can be better performers, even peak performers at whatever it is they're passionate about. So help people discover this podcast. Help me, help the listeners. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. And also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. So, so uh, it seems like on the, I've seen a couple of comedians play around with the crowd work. Like you have Anthony Jeselnik has done, done interesting things with crowd yeah. work. Uh, I just saw Judah Friedlander the other yeah, day, he does like, of, yeah, doing some crowd work, and it's it it definitely seems like, as opposed to months or weeks or years in advance plotting out a joke, being able to kind of take a situation and and quickly think of something funny, mm-hmm. like it's more than just a sense of humor. It's like a certain quickness. Yeah, I mean, a quickness is it's yeah. Otherwise, you just end up doing cheesy, like. Hey, it was two women with a guy. You know, like, what's that about? Like, you know, must have a big dick or some shit like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is. That's all about being quick. So, what's your what's your favorite example from from crowd work? The um, God, I mean, <clears throat> I'm trying to uh, uh, the, the 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 one with the band is probably up there. Like, I like the dry soda one as well. Yeah, the dry soda guy who had the job who's job was to tweet for a, a low sugar soda company and I had some fun with that. It's kind of a hard thing to quote. Well, well, you asked him his, uh, for flavor and the first one he said was cucumber. Right. 
And you said, you really, you're going to lead with that? Yeah, right. Yeah, like that's, if you're not selling me, if your first one is cucumber, because that just doesn't sound real good. But yeah, so there's, it's, um, I do find that the crowd work shows are weirdly, um, make me less nervous than, even though it seems counterintuitive. I guess because the, there's no memory factor. There's no memory and there's no, I mean, and sometimes it's like, oh, wow, I don't have to write out a sad list. I'm just take a shower and get over there. But there's also, I think maybe it's more exciting for me just because I don't know what's about to happen. So it's less boring. You know, this, sometimes you do a joke a hundred times, you're like, oh, I'm not, this is not quite the thrill it was. I, I would imagine though, when you, um, when you start to, let's say you start to bomb in a crowd work situation, it might feed on itself. <laughs> like, how do you pull yourself out of that? Yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, that is the thing where like, there are different, little different sets of rules. Like if someone's like, if I'm doing a non-crowd work show and someone's like, it's my birthday, it's like, I yeah, not that. I'm doing a show and you're doing, I'm not going to turn my show into your birthday. But if you sh- if you do a crowd work show and someone says your birthday, then you can just go down that road of like, well, what'd you do for your birthday? Or like, uh, what, what, tell me about your gifts. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it, I've had some fun. Uh, it's it's best to watch the special. It's on Netflix too, if you want to not buy it. But it's hard to it's hard to like re, re to quote my own crowd work, especially because I can't remember it. Um, <laughs> did Netflix buy it af- from Louis C.K.? So Louis C.K. I guess owned it technically. <laughs> Louis C.K. I mean, he uh, yeah he. He owned it. I guess he still owns it, but or I own it. I might own it. <laughs> but I sold like it to another company that puts it on other platforms. So they sold it to Netflix, and then they released an album. And if it ends up on like Comedy Central or something, they'll handle that. So, so it seems like it seems like the the way many comedians kind of build careers around stand up is they kind of slice it into many things. So like you just did this book, Welcome to Hattiesburg. Thank you for coming to Hattiesburg. Thank you for coming to Hattiesburg. Uh, You do the specials, maybe Uh you would do a sitcom. And obviously you've done many different Mm -hmm. things. Do you feel like you're kind of at the place in comedy you want to be? I I mean, I try to remember because, you know, every day there's some, you know, there's some little minor hassle about something logistically about doing comedy. Um, but yeah, I, there's things I want to do, I guess. And there's things that I wish there's things that are like, wow, did I miss the boat on being able to do this? But then you all sort of have to go, well, maybe if I really wanted to do that particular thing, I would have done it. But, like, like what other thing could you pot? Did you want to be a doctor? <laughs> no, no, I don't mean even mean, I mean, even within the realm of comedy, like, like I never, I, I mean, could I have tried harder to pitch a TV show? I could still do it. And I still have like ideas. Um, Cause I you know you get it, you get in a certain age and then you start, you know, you start thinking about that kind of shit. Well, okay. So you're 53. Yeah. Right. And so do you think, what are you going to be doing when you're 65? I mean, that's another thing with me is like, I never, I've never been a guy like, here's my five year plan. Like I like, no, nah, here's my next hour and a half plan. I mean, I plan some things, obviously book shows, but I've never been, I know comedians who have their calendar filled, you know, in January, they have their entire year, the rest of the year blocked out. And I've never been that, that much of a planner. When you did this tour of tertiary markets, you must Uh have had like a whole kind of tour planned. Yeah. I mean, I have an agent, so I just, you know, I just go, uh, this is what I'm going to do. And then he goes, all right, how about Birmingham, Athens, you know, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And he just gets, he fields offers. So, I mean, I am lucky. He's a good agent. And it's also, it's nice that I can pretty much, for the most part, I've never been like rejected by an entire city. Like there's somewhere they'll have me. And then what's the economics of that usually? Do they kind of give you a, a fee and then they um, kind of plan on hopefully selling enough tickets or... Um, is it based on the tickets sold? Well, it, it it depends. It um, you're like a business guy, right? Is that why you're asking me this question? I, I'm an everything guy. <laughs> okay, but uh, but I'm always curious about that. It depends. I mean, there's some things where there's some shows that go, we're giving you, you know, this much all in, and then you go, okay, if I get a flight and a hotel, that's still this much left over. Let's do it. Then more often, it's it, and I've. Like when you first start on comedy clubs, it's a lot of like even at a club, 
They're like, you're getting X amount of dollars, whether 5,000 people show up and or 7,000 people. I mean, that's a lot of people in a club, but I mean, depending on how, like any extra audience, is, they will benefit and you won't. So I've changed that to more of a door deal situation where it'll be like, this is my guaranteed price versus a percentage of the door. So And whichever's higher is what I get. Oh, okay. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, that involves a little bit of trust. Now, what about though, like in a situation like when you open up for Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, it's like 25,000 people there. I mean, those situations are, even though you're playing Madison Square Garden, it's like, it's not full because of you. It's full because of him. And so, so does that make you feel worse or? No, no. I mean, I, I, it doesn't, I'm not going, hey, this is bullshit. He, there are all these people here to see him. I, where's my man? It's like, you'd be crazy to book me at Madison Square Garden. I'm like, I, you know, like. Was it still a friendly crowd though? Like, was it a crowd? It was that- really friendly. It was actually, I mean, it was a very surreal experience, but I, I do remember the next day I did a show at a comedy club. Like, this is the day after I did Madison Square Garden. And I was like, 30 people in the audience and like 20 of them were, there was like a private party of teachers and they were like being rude and just shitty. And it's just like, it was like last night it was 14,000 people and, and uh, there was no problems. And here I'm like putting out fires to do a 15 minute set. Did you say, do you, do you people know last night I was at Madison? Oh yeah, I definitely mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think they care, but um, you know, that's that's just kind of an example that you something you might still have to deal with. It's like, Oh, the audience, it's a two-thirds of them are a private party. Okay, well, that's might be bad. And is that because they're not, again, they're not the friendly crowd, they're just like a party that's going to a comedy club? Yeah, or they think uh, this is our night. Right, so they want to They don't think talking. of the show, yeah, like they want to talk and they're just, they all have this little support system of like, hey, that's Bobby over there, that's Susie over there, and uh, we're, just, we're just hanging out and we're blown off steam and it's kind of, uh, so it can be. It can be. I mean, there's also, you know, going back to financial stuff, there's times where you'll show up at a club to do like the show for like nominal money. And then you find, oh, yeah, the whole place was bought by this. Oh, so you charge them a ton of money and you're just paying. This would be a corporate gig and you're turning it into just a regular spot. But that's just, uh, I mean, that doesn't, hasn't happened a lot, but that is something that happens. And then are they in, the, in those situations, let's say one of them heckles, are they more likely to heckle? Um, who heckles anyway? I never actually have seen a heckler. I mean, that's another thing about developing a fan base is like, is like if you do the seven shows in a in a city that has four hundred thousand people, it it that's all about. I mean, that's something I talk about a lot. Is you have to train the audience. Like a club has to train the audience. So if you go to like the Comedy Cellar, which is a very good club in New York, you walk in, they go, "Don't use your phone." Like every person gets that directly said to them, you'll be thrown out. And there's really not a problem with phones. There's other clubs in the city and other places where you show up and there's like three people in the front row on their phones. And it's just like, and no one says anything to them. And then you have to decide, oh, am I going to ignore this? Or am I going to derail my show to t- talk about this? But um, What do you do? I More and more I try to, I always feel good when I ignore something. Because I try, or you know, sometimes, you know, I look to my right and there's someone, some dude Facebooking or something from the third row, and it's like, okay, I could say something, and sometimes I will, or I could turn to a little to my left and do the next twelve minutes that I'm on stage and not look at this guy and play to everyone else. So I try to think of the uh, the bigger pig. Like another thing Seinfeld told me when he we did that thing is like I asked him about this texting and stuff, bother he goes. I don't think about anything beyond the edge of the stage. Like mm. I don't care what's happening out there, which is, I mean, I imagine he cares if you just started yelling and to the but point that could be the benefit of how he's so carefully scripted out every <clears throat> movement of every joke. Like I feel like every body movement he does during a joke, he's done it before. Yeah, but I mean, he could also, I mean, if the wrong person showed up, a drunk idiot, yeah, I mean, they, they could fuck his show up a little bit. So what would you do in that case? Um, I mean, ideally you, you get, I, one thing I don't like to do is like, I'd rather bore these people than go, I'm going to, I'm going to take on this guy for 15 minutes. Like I, I don't, he doesn't deserve that. He doesn't get to decide 
my show that night. So I'd rather have him just removed then. So so even I'm always I'm always interested in the concept of bombing because you go out okay. there, you've worked you've worked thirty years or something, twenty five years or something, you go into the audience and it just doesn't work that night. And how do you kind of deal with it in real time and then afterwards? Well, I'll give you an example of a time I bombed. In a, I, did a, I did a TV show in London where they just filmed a bunch of comics at the comedy store. And it went well, and then they brought me back. And this time, for some reason, they had me going on last. And it was all guys from the UK and, and Ireland um, and one American, which was me. And they'd, the audience had been there a long time, you know, a few hours just doing prep, and then... We came in for a sound check, and then so they had been there hours. The audience, and I went on last. And the MC, who I know didn't mean any harm at all, was just like, "Well, you're gonna, um, you're gonna recognize something. You're gonna notice something about our next comic once he starts talking." So he's putting in their head that I'm an American or whatever. So then I went up there and I, was, I said, "Yes, I'm American," and I just proceeded to bomb. But what I did in that case is because I knew cameras were rolling. And I told him, I go, I'm just going to pretend I'm doing well. I'm going to look into the camera. So I would tell the joke. It wouldn't work. And I'd look and smile. And I told the audience I was doing that. But it was, it was rough because... And then people told me, oh, we couldn't hear you. Which is like, oh, I actually did a sound check and you still couldn't. I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear after a show. Is like, oh, the audience actually couldn't even... Because that's not up to me. I'm not the sound person. So that was the thing, but all the comics, you know, comics were coming up to me like, that's going to be all right. They'll edit that nicely. And like, because <laughs> they've all been there. So it was that, but that was rough because it was just like, you know, flew to London to do this thing and, and to go on, to go on last. I mean, they should have had like a high energy local hero go on last and put me on second or third. Is last like a, hard, a typically hard spot? Well, I mean, I don't want to blame. I mean, if they've been there, you know, it's, it's going to be more challenging if an audience has been there for four hours and is like, all right, we've kind of had enough. And and then going on there and sort of having someone put something in their head, like, oh, this guy, listen to him talk. Like, why don't you just let them listen? I mean, I know he didn't mean anything harm at all, but yeah, so I, I think that partially was to blame. I don't, I don't, I mean, I told the jokes that I tell, so I don't, I didn't flub them. And then, but do you ever afterwards feel like, oh, I've I've lost it. I've that ability is um, gone. I guess that's one thing that keeps me going is that I don't. I, you know, that like that night I was, yeah, I was bombed, and but I don't think it. It doesn't. It wasn't like I gotta quit. I'd be more. I mean, I'd be more likely to quit if just the audiences were rude night after night, as opposed to not laughing. Because I can't. Can only get so mad at someone who doesn't laugh at my jokes. But. You know, yeah. So I, I've never translated bombing into oh, this is this is a sign I should give it up. So, so what led to the book? Uh, thank you for oh. coming to Hattiesburg. Um, well, truthfully, I, I, I mean, the, how it happened was I, a book agent wanted me to meet me, and uh, I met with him. He's like, "Have you thought about writing a book?" And I said. I, yeah, I have thought about it, but I, I don't know what I should write a book about. And he's like, well, let's think of an idea right now. And then we just, he talked, he asked me questions. And at some point I mentioned, oh, I like playing, you know, tour. he goes like, you know, what do you like to do? I like a tour. And sometimes I like to play these smaller cities. And he's like, why don't you write the book about that? And then like four weeks later, I had a, a book deal. So, I mean, someone struggling as a writer probably didn't want to hear that story, but... <laughs> Well, but but what's great is I mean, I still have to write the book. So you, you, the the book on the surface has so many like small details about all of these yeah. cities and venues and so on. But again, each paragraph it's almost like your style of joke telling, like right. they're very droll and dry, but yeah. they're funny. Well, that, yeah, I mean that's that is the thing people will say. You know, like oh, I can hear your voice. Well, it's because you know my voice. <laughs> and I wrote, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, obviously. You don't want it to be one of these books where you're like, I don't even think this person wrote this. You know what I mean? Like they clearly got help. I wanted to. Be, I mean, I wrote it 100 percent myself, so I didn't. There's no secret ghostwriter or anything. But it's also it's very much like, uh, like like the uh, 
the format is very solid. Like you stuck to that format. I'm just going to write about these tertiary cities yeah. and all the details. But but and again, you made jokes about everything. It's not like you said, okay, this is my career from beginning to. It's not like a memoir or anything like that. Right, and it's not. It, yeah, it's it's a tour diary, is what it is, and it's just not. And there's not like some overarching like, hey, there's a reason I'm doing this, and it's to get you guys thinking about this. I mean, there is a little bit of that because I I do have feelings about elitism, um, but it wasn't. You know, it's basically just a book of me talking about how boring I am on the road. Well, no, it wasn't boring at all. And uh, uh, there was one there was one part I was curious about where I think you were in Philadelphia and somebody opened for you who was his first time. And you were you were not upset about it, but you you pointed it out in a funny way. Right. And you mentioned that um, you could tell it was his first time because he had no structured jokes. And I was curious what you meant by structured jokes. I mean, <clears throat> that was an example where I was talking about, I mean, the reason I talk about Philadelphia, which is a big city, is I was talking about opening acts and I was kind of going on a tangent in the book about problems I've had with opening acts. But he was just the guy, he just, he just, you know, I've seen open mics where I go to, or I'll do some shows that are like new comic shows here in New York. And you'll see someone who's like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. It's not even about what they're saying. And this was just clearly a guy who just thought he could go up there. And it's more the promoter's fault in that situation because she was like, this guy's going to really fill the place up. It's like, well, there's like 50 people there and I'm guessing... 30 of them were, and like he, he may have brought 10 people, but he literally got booed off the stage, hmm. which I don't support that. But he was like, You're not doing anything. You're not even telling bad jokes. You're just, I don't remember like specifically, but it was just him just kind of like, Hey, yeah, 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 I'm up here. Okay, yeah, what's what happens now? And it was that, I, that made me angry because that was just like, that, that was thrust, that was kind of forced upon me. That's why I try to control like who opens for me and things like that. And so right now you're filming this special. Yeah, you don't know yet where it's, it's going to go. Do you think now there's so many? I mean, there's. It seems like there's more outlets than ever for comedians to put up a special. Like you go to Amazon, Hulu, iTunes. Yeah, HBO. I don't know. Well, HBO is hard to get. Uh, I mean, not, not to correct you, but I don't think. I don't think like I don't know if iTunes is producing specials, but I think that they're they're going to start. They're oh, doing, are they? Where they're doing original programming? Which oh, I didn't eventually know that. Eventually, will okay. lead to yeah, comedy specials. Well, I mean. Comedy specials are they're kind of cheap to make, and if uh, if people watch them, then it's better than you know probably doing a TV series where there's a million locations or whatever. But um, what was your question? I'm sorry. So just that it seems like it's there's more opportunities than ever now. Is it fairly easy to let's say do a special and then get it up somewhere? Um, not that it's easy, easy. Well, I mean, the thing is, you do have to. I mean, even though I said they're cheap, they're not cheap for an individual necessarily. Like some guy who's, or some comic who might have a small fan base, might not sell enough to recoup what they invested. But you can go to, like, uh, like I said, like an Amazon or a Netflix. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that easy just to go to Amazon. Hey, you want to make my special? Like, they sort of have to go, why are we making? They have to know who you are. And I don't think it's. It's not. It's not like an open mic night. <laughs> Why can't you produce your own specials? You can, and some people do that. Mm. But I mean, it does cost you money. Then you have to find a way to sell it, and maybe you could sell it to Netflix. But yeah, so there are ways to do it. It's just I'm I'm not good at self producing stuff. What are What are some of the comics you enjoy watching? Uh ooh, this is a, this is always a a rough one because I. I get. Let's assume you like everyone, right? So you don't insult anyone, right? I, I mean, I always panic whenever there's anything involving making a list, but I will. Who do I think is great? Uh, uh, I think uh, David Tell's great. Doug Stanhope's great. Maria Bamford's great. Obviously, Sarah Silverman. Um, uh, Rachel Feinstein's really funny. Uh, gosh, I'm yeah. There's a, there's a lot of people out there. I think there's a lot of good comics out there. Yeah. I mean, you've interviewed like uh, about 130 on your on your podcast, right? Right. So you have your podcast, right? I can't even remember who I've interviewed, but uh, I have that problem too. This is my like 230th podcast. Uh-huh. I can't remember anything about who I interviewed. Like, yeah, a year I almost ago. never listen to them, and I don't. I don't even know what I talked about in all these things, and I can't believe that I did, I've done that many of them. So, uh, in one of your episodes, uh, uh, episode 111, Judd Apatow. Uh-huh. When you're talking to someone like Judd Apatow, do you ever think to yourself, "Oh, I wish." After this interview, he'll cast me like in a movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, there is that. I mean, I'm sure if I said, "Can you 
like I got him to write a blurb for my book and he's yeah I'll do that he wrote me a few and so you want to keep doing these and like so he's pretty approachable dude but yeah I mean I think if he wants me in something he will cast me in something I don't he's aware of me so I don't I try not I don't know it's a fine line between being you know there's people out there like gotta hustle and it's like I've had people who are like you're not hustling you're just annoying me and you're annoying other people. You see him on Twitter, like writing to someone over and over again. You're like, you got to admire my. I saw that someone wrote to me and and Aziz about something where he wanted to watch some clip of his. That was a long, like forty five minutes. And he's like, you got to admire my hustle. It's like, I, 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 why do I have to admire that? <laughs> well, I think people think it doesn't hurt to ask, right? When actually it does hurt, right? <laughs> like they're giving you homework just to help them. Exactly. Exactly. It's like I what's it's a what it's a what's in it for me scenario. Like I've had people like you know, comics, I'll be I'll show up at a show and like, hey, would you watch my set and let me know what you think? It's like, what if I don't like it? Now I'm what did what'd you do tonight? I insulted a stranger and I didn't with unsol with on his by his request. I mean I don't want to I don't want to uh yeah, I don't want to hurt your feelings and also Chances are I'm I'm not gonna like you, and I mean I I like doing that with if someone a friend of mine writes something I'm like oh I'd love to read it and you get notes and give notes to people but yeah there is that thing there is that fine line between persistent and kind of like all right that was a bold move to oh you're just being a pushy per you're pushy so so clearly though you've hustled you've done specials you've been on like a thousand tv shows you have this book you do how many shows do you do and stand up just around the city yeah um, i mean i probably do hundreds every year so yeah so clearly you're you're doing your thing yeah um what would you say and i'll just kind of conclude with this but what what would you say has been like how, how other than just going up and doing it as much as possible what would you say were the ways you've built the skill it's clearly there's a skill level. Everyone I've spoken to who's like a stand-up comic has been doing it for like a minimum of 15 years. Right. Like no one's done it for less than that. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who break out who've done it less than that. But um, so what were you saying? How did I develop? Yeah. I mean, I think it really is a... Um, like you could be the funniest guy in the world, but you still won't have the skill for 15 years. Well, I think a lot of it is the instant feedback you get where you're like, if I had bombed... 25 times in a row then I might not be doing it but you go all right I must it it tells you you did something right I mean there are times when it tells you you did something effective and then later on you go ah, that wasn't right like I mean if I tell a shitty joke that I know deep down sucks but they like it sometimes I'll be like I can't do that joke did did you model yourself after certain comedians who came before you I didn't necessarily model myself I guess I I was always a fan of uh when I was in high school, of like, you remember like the Merv Griffin show and all these shows where they would have like, here's a bright young comic on, like Carson would have these people on who were like, you know, this was part of the late 70s, 80s comedy boom. And, and that's where I saw Letterman. Like I saw Letterman when he was just a stand-up before he had any TV shows. And so he was already on my radar. So people like that, I always liked the sort of the, the bright young comic type. And and Letterman also kind of as a stand-up seemed to have that droll sort of style right. where he didn't really seem that affected by what was going on in the audience. Right. I mean, I was always kind of surprised that he took that they took a chance on him because he's not super slick and he's not like, you know, generically handsome or anything, but and, and kind of a, a dark dude. And you know, if if you think about it, you look at his career, he didn't really it didn't really work out for him in radio. It didn't really work out for him in the morning show. And they did take this big chance on him, giving him this, you know, Carson basically owned that late night slot and gave it to him. Uh-huh. So he he did kind of, you know, there was a luck factor, but he kind of hustled around, you know, trying all these different formats, but failing at them. Right. I mean, yeah, he was a weatherman. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that was his training to be a weatherman. I don't think he studied it, but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... Uh, I think it it's it's just you just keep doing it and that's your that's your that's your skill developing is I mean there's not like it's not like I meet with a coach or someone who tells me how to breathe on stage or something or do warm ups or vocal warm ups or anything so it's kind of a it is just a 
just kind of, that's why I don't really love when people, I try to discourage people from going to stand-ups classes because I feel like it's kind of a dive in and see what happens kind of thing. Right. It's not like becoming a dermatologist or something. I want, one of these days I want to try doing crowd work in one of my talks and just totally failing and see if I could handle it. Yeah, give it a whirl. So Todd Barry, one of my favorite comedians, also author of Thank You for Coming to Hattiesburg, which I highly recommend. Oh, thank you. And uh, watch your next special, watch all your prior specials, watch the crowd work special. Yeah. Uh, all of it's good. Thank you. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and that it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. Also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.